This is the Danger Close Podcast, Beyond the Books, with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. This is a best of episode focusing on conversations with SAS and SBS special operators. And that is the Special Air Service and Special Boat Service, two of the most elite special operations forces in the world that I have been fortunate enough to work with downrange. And now, without further ado, best of SAS, SBS. Chris Ryan. Chris is the author of over 70 works of fiction and nonfiction. His first book right here is called The One That Got Away. This is my original copy from back in the day. He was a member of Bravo 2-0 during the first Gulf War in 1991 and ended up going on E&E, Escape and Evasion, all the way to the Syrian border. Here's part of the story. Now, because of my experience, when it started snowing, there was a high wind chill factor. The wind was blowing, but more, more importantly, the snow kept changing into rain and the ditch that we were in kept filling up with water. And it, it probably saved us in terms of these Iraqi soldiers who were close by didn't you know, walk over to us. But Vince started showing all the classic signs of um, hypothermia and um, he, was, he was going down rapidly. Um, I can honestly say it was the longest day in my life and I've worked in some of the coldest environments in the world. And, and I, I, I will say this, um, I wouldn't let anybody move. Um, our recipes is during the day you don't move. So I said, nobody's moving and I made them stay still. Now I know I've got to live with a, a man's life here. Um, it, um, it's it, uh, it, 1800, um, it was dark. And I said, right, let's move. Well, when we came to move, um, it was nearly impossible. We'd lost the use of our fingers, our, t- our toes. Um, it felt like you were just crippled with arthritis in your knees, your thighs, your, your lower back. And um, trying to stand up was an effort. And again, um, we tried to move around in the confines of the tank berm to get some movement. But all we were doing um, was actually um, making ourselves um, colder because your body in, in that state, it basically starts pooling all of the warm blood in your core. And that's why you lose the, the use of your fingers, your arms, your legs, because the blood is being sucked up into your core to keep your vital organs going. But by moving quickly and trying to you know, warm up, um, all of that warm blood starts going to your cold fingers, hands, and then that's making making you even more cold. So it wasn't working. So again, started moving off. My main concern now was um, if we bump into the Iraqis, um, I will not be able to operate my weapon. I can't feel my hands. Um, by this time, the snow and rain had stopped, but there was cloud, uh, high winds, and the moon would come out now and then, and all of a sudden everything would light, light up. It would darken down, and um, uh, at this point, Vince started um, like screaming, uh, making a lot of noise. Um, he was showing all the classic signs of, of hypothermia. So I would walk back, um, talk to him, and this is—I mean, 
without going into detail for the respect of his family, but I would try and cheer him on in terms of remind him of his family. Um, I would shout at him. I would do lots of different things to see if I could get like some type of reaction. So at this point, um, I said to Stan, who was with me, um, you, you and him stay about um, probably about 50 to 100 feet away from me. Just keep me in sight. Don't lose sight of me, but let me get up ahead and I can walk. And if he's making noise, hopefully I'll see the enemy beforehand and then I'll move back and then we'll box round them. So we did that. And um, I'm not really sure how long we'd been walking. Um, and um, uh, Stan said, um, I've lost contact with Vince. So got back to him and um, the ground, there was um, where the snow had been drifting. Uh, then I would follow my footprints and then I'd get to an area where the snow had blown off and it was flatbed rock. Now, if you imagine your route, say, going from north to south, uh, I would get, to, you know, enter from the north and head across to the south. And my footprints weren't there and they were actually over on the east side. So I'd start following there and the the next thing would happen. And then it it actually, I it just had a light bulb moment that, you know, I was walking in a zigzag myself and I was navigating. And then I realized how bad the hypothermia had got a hold of me. Now we, we I think it probably 30 minutes, 40 minutes backtracking. And that was back to the enemy, back to the storm. And it was me, it was, I made the decision um, that, I wasn't going to go back any further and uh, we were to carry on on the route. Now, I know in my heart of hearts what would have happened with Vince is he would have found a hollow in the ground. He would have sat down and he would have had that flush of um, heat. And um, it's a horrible thing with hypothermia. You, um, you start to heat up just before you're going to die. And what you do is you start stripping your clothes off. And basically, it, um, you strip your clothes off because you think you're hot. And then within about a minute or so, you're dead. And that's what happened. Now, Vince's body was recovered by the Iraqis, and they were very respectful with him. Uh, they returned his body, and that was put through an autopsy and uh, everything else. And at the coroner's report, he, he predicted Vince died the day before or the day after. He died that night. Um, so we carried on. And um, we seem to come off the high ground into a series of, um, uh, into small wadis. And these wadis were only about three or, or four foot deep. So just, you know, just before first light, we, um, we lay there cuddling one another in. Um, and um, first light came up, the sun came up, but it was still like, you know, blue skies, but not enough to think, I'm comfortable here, but enough to get your fingers moving. Um, we immediately cleaned the weapons off because they were sodden in mud, you know, rammed. So we cleaned the weapons off. And um, we started looking at the map. <clears throat> and because our maps were really aviator maps, there'd been two, um, uh, on, the, on the map, there'd been two pylons, uh, two rows of pylons. And I can remember going under one pylon, but on the map, um, the one pylon was like, say, about 40 kilometers closer to the border. And I predicted that's where we were. And uh, so that wasn't bad. You know, it was just probably another two days. Um, that's, that's all right, because we've got no food and uh, no water. So we lay there and uh, sure enough, and again, I'm sure you know, 
you're sat in the middle of nowhere and then the, the goat herder comes out of nowhere. In Afghanistan he, still, we learned he, it again. Yeah, exactly. And you know you, you, that you've got hundreds of waddies around you and um, the freaking goats just come and they stopped off at the waddy we were in. And as we were laid there, they, they started to walk up towards us and we just kept down. They walked past us grazing and the the, the goat herder, he was a big unit, big lad, uh, probably about 20 odd, 25. And um, I started looking and I went, right, if he comes up here, I'm going to drop him. And um, Stan being a gentleman, I would say, he said, no, 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 he can't do that. I went, yeah, I am. If he's coming up, if we tie him up, he'll die anyway. If we if we do him, we've done him. And that's it. If we let him go, he's going to tell the Iraqi forces and they're going to be on to us. So sure enough, um, he stood up and started walking towards us. And when he stood up, I realized he was a big guy. I'm only 5'10", but uh, Stan's about 6'4". Mm. So I said, you grab him, I'll stick him, and uh, we'll drop him, bring him down. And uh, Stan, Stan uh, he said, uh, no, no, he said, that's against the, the uh, rules of uh, engagement and all the rest of them. Like, Screw the rules of engagement, <laughs> you know. Um, so as it was, he jumped up, grabbed him, but protected him and sat him down. And it was the right thing to do. To, to be honest, really. So we're talking, and again, talking to the locals, you if you say tractor, vehicle, or whatever, they'll go, Iowa, Iowa, Iowa. And they have no sense of distance or how long it'll take you. And he kept pointing. And then Stan said, uh, I trust this guy. And I went, You've got to be kidding me. I said, um, We'll keep him here and then we'll leave it uh it last night. He went, No, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go and see if I can get this vehicle. And I was like, No. And he went, Yeah. So he took his bell kit off and he, he left his rifle and started walking off. And I'm looking at them and I thought, this is wrong. So I called him back and I said, listen, mate, at least take your rifle, but keep that down by your side. And uh, I said, if you change your mind, slot him and come back. And he went, no, I trust him. He's given me some berries. Um, I'm off. So I said, I'm, I'm here until six o'clock. So basically um, six o'clock came and uh you know, I'm hanging on to five past. I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt, you know, and he didn't come. So I moved off. Now, what had happened in reality is he'd walked right up until nearly last light and he'd get into the top of a, um, a valley. And sure enough, there was a White House with a land cruiser there and uh, the goat herder appointed and he'd gone down. And as he got to the land cruiser, 14 Iraqi soldiers came out of the um, hut and he was bagged. He, he, he'd gone. So there was no chance of him coming back. Um, I um, I uh, started walking and um, I'd been walking for about 20 minutes and I looked over my shoulder and there's a set of headlights and I thought, Jesus, I, you know, he was right, I was wrong. So I ran back, uh, but the first set of headlights were followed by a second set and um, there were two cars um, and, and Basically, um, there was they'd, they'd circled the, um, the the wadi. There was voices, muffled voices, but my um, kite sight kept burning, burning out, mm. and I couldn't make out what they were. Um, they 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 moved away. I grabbed all my gear and started running away in the opposite direction, and then they came back on the on the site, and then there was a contact, and basically there was rounds exchanged, but they were all civilians.
Mm. I moved off from that point and carried on to where I went under the these um, these pylons. And then I ended up on some high ground and there was a village in front of me. Um, I couldn't see the river or the Euphrates, but I could make out a line of, of palm trees. So I got down to the palm trees and sure enough, the river went out in front. But what, what it was, there was a pile, there was piles of brushwood evenly spaced every couple of hundred meters. So I crept down to get water because it, it get now it's like two and a half days since I've had water. And as soon as I stepped in, I went straight up to my waist in like a silt. Now, again, to the to the listener, it mightn't be a big deal, but it's still minus like um, zero and it's still freezing. So I, I threw my belt kit out, my rifle out, and then I had to crawl into a depth on this brushwood, which meant I was soaking all down my front, fill my water bottles up. Then I got back into the wadi system and I got a hollow on the north side of a slope and just tucked myself in there and I I just froze. And it wasn't until um, first light came up, um, it hit me that I was by myself. Um, and I don't give a monkeys how hard you are, how tough you are. It, 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 it gets you. And some bizarre, this is really bizarre, and you're going to think I'm a nutcase, but... Um, uh, this thought came out and it was when I was a kid, my mom used to say, if things get on top of you, have a good cry. And I'm thinking, I'm sitting there and I'm like that. And I had to look around to make sure exactly. nobody's watching. And I try, I tried to cry, but I couldn't cry. I just, and I put, I burst into laughing thinking you idiot, you know, and I laughed, but you know what? It was that release of tension. Mm. It, it was like a cloud bit lifting off me. I sat down, I looked at my map. I was still, you know, freezing cold, but I knew this is it. I'm by myself. Nobody's coming to get you. And um, this is where you've got to go. So the hardest thing is lying around for 12 hours, not moving in freezing conditions. Because again, you will you will nod off into sleep for maybe three or four minutes. And then you'll wake up with a judder and you're freezing and shaking violently. So the sleep deprivation had kicked in. My feet were in in, in a bad state. Uh, the toenails had come off. Um, the the all the blisters had turned into open wounds. Um, started walking now that night. But what happened was, unbeknown to me, the the group of five, the other guys, they'd um, they'd getting uh, they'd been captured, and um, they knew that there was eight of us. Mm-hmm. They had Vince's body. They had Stan, they had everybody in the patrol. So during their interrogation, they kept saying, you know, where where was I? And um, so they'd, they'd get they deployed all the civilians from the, the villages along the Euphrates and 1600 troops um, were, were covering. But because it was so cold, when I started walking, I would either smell a fire or cigarette smoke, or I would see the fire and then I could stop move back, box them. Now I walked all that that night and I know I would have done 40 kilometers, uh, but I only made 10 on, you know, as the, mm-hmm. on the map. Right. That next morning, I found myself on a cliff face, um, which was quite nice in, in terms of I climbed down it and I got into a hollow. So it meant I was out, out of the wind. So I was not warm, but I was a lot more comfortable than being in the open. And I was looking over a, a village that was on the banks of the um, Euphrates. There was a couple of guys fishing. 
no sign of any military. So spent the day there, moved off again. And um, what I was doing was trying to gauge the distance between the Euphrates and where the wadi systems were coming in. Now, the safest option would have been to stay up in the wadis, but that meant I would be cross-graining. So if you put your fingers out, you'd be walking over your fingers mm -hmm. up and down, and that would sap a lot of energy. Also, that night, I saw um, a, a, a road sign, and it said Al-Qayyam, 50 kilometers, and uh, I think it was New Anna, 50 or whatever. So on the map, I could pinpoint exactly where I was. And honestly, I, I, I can remember not well nearly collapsing because I thought I was two days ahead of myself, wow. and now I'm two days behind. And so, how how far is it then from that sign to the Syrian border? To your uh, you're talking about uh, 160 uh, kilometers, about 100 miles plus uh, at this point. SAS operator Mark Billy Billingham, who after his time in the SAS was a bodyguard for people like Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie, and now is one of the co-hosts of SAS, Who Dares Wins. His book is called The Hard Way, Adapt, Survive, and Win. Here's Mark talking about some of the challenges of training in the jungle. What was the, the hardest part? Was it the jungle or was there something specific in the, in the jungle if you had to look back and think of uh, the hardest either, uh, either part, either mentally, yeah, physically, um, mentally, what, what, uh, part of that training process was the hardest one? And what lessons did you draw from that as you went into your squadron? I, I think, um, yeah, the jungle was definitely the hardest. Uh, the escape and evasion, a lot of people struggled with escape and evasion and doing interrogation. To me, I wouldn't say I struggled with it. I didn't fucking enjoy it. And I just saw it as, I didn't see it as being real, you know, when you're in captivity, because I knew I wasn't going to die because it's a training exercise. I knew it was uncomfortable, you know, doing stress positions and being held for so long. And it was really uncomfortable. I can see why people fail it, but I just thought it's just about, you know, digging deep, gritting your teeth and just kept saying to myself, it's a passage in time. It will be over at some point and I ain't going to die. It's as simple yeah. as that. But I think yeah. the biggest thing was the jungle, you know, I look back at the jungle, I think, you know, that was so mentally demanding and I wasn't expecting it, you know. Being on top of your shit, being able to navigate from the moment you step off that helicopter to the moment you step back on it five weeks later, you have to count every single pace because it's all about bearing the pace. And you get lost with your patrol, you can go missing for weeks and, you know, and then you're failed anyway. But it's, yeah. and it's real. So, yeah, the jungle was the, the biggest, the hardest phase. So, when I, you know, but when I joined the squadron, I was like, I got through selection. I thought, what do I offer? These are all. Mm experienced guys have been in operations all over the globe. You don't even know what they've been doing. And I was just feeling just like joining the army for the first time. What do I have to offer? Slightly different. It wasn't the same sort of pressure. It was like, or was it? Maybe it was. I was like looking at these older wild guys and everybody's so friendly, you know, and welcome, oh, wow. welcomed you in straight away. There's no initiation like when you first joined the army. These are all the older guys. And I remember looking around the squadron and thinking, Wow, this was not what I expected because if like you guys, you know, people go, Oh yeah, think of SEAL Team Six, think of Delta, think of SAS, think of Special Forces, and everybody thinks six foot six, fucking V shaped. Yeah. And I remember getting to the squadron thinking, Oh, these guys are gonna be and they weren't. They were little guys with pop bellies, bald heads, and I was like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. All shapes and sizes as well yeah. is my takeaway. Yeah. yeah. But 
put put a rocket on the back, me and you won't catch him or give him a, a yeah. task to do in the sharpness. And and that's and then I realised the beauty of the special forces world. It's it's not about image. It's about what's in your mind and going that little bit further and who you really are. You know. Yeah. I was in a room or a squadron full of people who were special people in different ways. You know. And I remember yeah. a big fat guy one day, as he looked to me, he goes, hey, fancy going for a run for us? Yeah, I'll kick your ass, mate, no problem. Fucking hell, I don't think I, I only saw the soles, soles of his feet. <laughs> I, I was like, where did that come from? Yeah, Amazing people. Our world is different, isn't it? And it's, you know, when people go, oh, yeah, special, there's something special about it. And I thought, we're not special, but actually we are in many ways. We think differently, uh, think differently, we act differently. And, you know, it's... It's a unique world, and my first initiation into the squad and looking around, it was exactly that. I was like, "Wow, who are these people? What are they?" Yeah, no, we had all shapes and sizes. I remember some guys up night all night drinking, hadn't even slept. They'd get back, and we'd go for a morning PT early on, and they'd uh, put out their cigarette essentially to do the PT, and then go on these runs, and they still crush you. Yeah. It, was, it was incredible. Just that, <laughs> you know, that mental fortitude. These guys were just tough, and you're stepping into this squadron with uh, veterans of uh, the Falklands War, you're, uh, with maybe some Princess Gate guys, um, Northern yeah. Ireland, uh, maybe Oman even, like these guys that had done these things in special operations for, and were the inheritors of, uh, of such a, a, a legacy um, of uh, special operations knowledge, wisdom, mm-hmm. um, and now you're a, you're a part of that, um, which, is, which is absolutely incredible. And at this point, you get to now jump into some of the things that uh, were a little little more fun. Uh, that driving, uh, that was one of the yeah. most fun things that I've ever done in the in the SEAL teams was the evasive driving courses. Um, but that, you're doing the, the sniper stuff, you're getting to do a whole uh, slew of things now, uh, or a whole new world maybe opens up. Is that is that right? Absolutely, mate. It, it was just that, you know. So I turn up and, like I said, you're, you're sort of welcome straight away and no one's really testing you. They're expecting you to have an input to anything that's going on. And, I, and like you just said there, you know, these guys have been all over the place. There was even guys from Prince Escape, because my squadron did Prince Escape, peace squadron. And there's these guys who'd been on the Iranian embassy, did all this. And, you know, so I was kind of a bit overwhelmed, thinking, wow. But they didn't give a shit about it. Yeah, just a job, you know, let's move on. But then, yeah, then this new world opens up. You know, one minute you, you're doing your, your, your sort of uh, trauma, life support, medical course, whatever it is, 10 weeks. Then the next thing, I'm, I'm in the Royal London Hospital acting as a doctor, literally flying down the middle of London High Street, uh, Oxford Street, running down the road and saving people's lives just to get my qualification. Then back to the squadron, then we'd be off to some foreign country somewhere for two or three weeks to apprehend or hostage release or whatever we're doing. Then you're back in Hereford again and then then... I'm at the Ome Lacey College learning how to use a chainsaw. And, and I'm like, hey, where does this fit in? And doing all these crazy things, which you just wouldn't expect. You know, then I'm doing a language course. Then I'm doing a photographer course. Then I'm Because it fits into somewhere in a picture of somewhere we're going to be operating to mm-hmm. have the knowledge and to be able to do these things. So it was, it was just unbelievable, you know. It was a new world, this absolute new world. And I think for... Over 12 months, I probably never even put a uniform on. I was working <laughs> over and doing shit and like, fucking hell, this is crazy, wow. but amazing. Absolutely amazing. It was an absolute new world. I love it. Special Boat Service Operator, Ollie Ollerton. After his time in the SBS, 
He was a security contractor in Iraq and helped dismantle a child trafficking syndicate in Southeast Asia. Today, you can find him as one of the co-hosts of SAS, Who Dares Wins. But I do want to talk to you. I want to start off with something. It was like in chapter two or three, and I'm reading it, and I went back, and I'm like, what on earth is going on here? And that's the chimpanzee attack at age, <laughs> at Mate, age how did 10. I know that, how did I know that you're going to talk about that? I mean, that's everyone's question. I know, because you read it, and you're like, wait a sec, wait, what? Like, like that's just, huh? <laughs> and uh, so yeah. for people that, uh, that haven't read the book yet, can you, uh, can you talk about that and, it, and, and how it impacts you still today? Yeah. Uh, and, and it's funny because everyone that um, kind of reads the book, you know, they think everything else is real, but they go, but the chimp bit was, is that real? And I'm like, yeah, man, that, is, that is real. And the reason that's so significant to me, Jack, is the fact I can't remember life before that occurrence. You know, life, and because it was so traumatic as a 10-year-old, I can't remember life pre-10 years old. Wow. And really, for me, for those listening, just to give you a snapshot, um, one day we were going down to, we are just going swimming one day, a local town, and um, we came across the circus on the way to the swimming baths. Um, we went into this, we asked if we could have a look around. This was 1980. There was no health and safety. You could wander around a circus with wild animals. It was pretty cool. Um, and, um, you know, we said, can we have a look around this? Yeah, help yourself. I, being an inquisitive little 10-year-old, separated from my brother and his best mate and went to the other side of the canvas in the big top, looked through the canvas and saw something in front of me which was absolutely amazing. And that was, that was the chimp, the little baby chimps out there. Now, for me, I'd been watching Tarzan every day of the summer holidays. I was addicted to Tarzan. That, for me, was like females seeing George Clooney naked in the middle of this open expanse, you know, it was cheetah. And I was like, whoa, I was brought up with cats and dogs, but this was like a, a real live chimp sat there. So I was compelled to go over to it before I knew it. This chimp is actually feeding me its own food. And I'm like thinking, I'm not going to have that. It's disgusting, but there's no way I was going to break the serenity of that moment. And I was, I was just getting the food and sliding it down my sort of face, throwing it over my shoulder. And it was, it was a beautiful moment. It was timeless. It was something I'll never forget, but I'll also never forget what happened afterwards. And that serenity was broken like a fighter jet cutting through the skies. I heard a roar that I'll never forget to this day. And I saw then in the shadows something moving. It was clearly uh, mummy or daddy that was not happy that I was with its young, uh, saw me as a threat and headed to me at Mach 10. Um, and my feet were glued to the floor. I was like, Jesus Christ, what is happening? You know, this thing is coming at me, Mac 10, and I'm like, I can't move. Um, and just at the point I, I thought, I better, I better move. This thing pounced through the air, 20 foot through the air. The blue sky turned to black. It landed on my chest, pinned me to the floor, and it just started going mental. The first fist came down, blew all the wind out of me, and it was knocking the shit out of me. And then it started to bite me. There was blood flying everywhere. My life flashed in front of me. It didn't take long because I was 10. <clears throat> um, and uh, at that point, I knew I needed to do something. And um, it was that instinct. It wasn't a thought. It was instinct. I managed to move my body enough to get my knee up to my chest. I smashed out as hard as possible, not the chimp to the floor. Um, I then had a few seconds to get out of there. And I was scurrying across the floor, across the ground, looking at this chimp get back to its feet. It then came at me on its final attack, even angrier than before. And I kid you not, a, a hair away from my nose and the chain caught it. It couldn't get any further to me. 
if it wasn't for the chain, I wouldn't be telling the story. It w- certainly wouldn't be in a book. Um, and that, for me, typifies breakpoint. It's that short, that was my first breakpoint. It would not be my last, but it was that short-term discomfort for long-term gain. Short-term discomfort was taking the fight to a grown chimp at 10. And the long-term gain of that was the fact I lived to tell the tale. And really, that is the whole concept of breakpoint, is the fact that, you know, it's not about going to a circus and getting attacked. I don't want anyone to do that. But it's the fact that the way we're wired, we're wired to take short-term comfort, and that leads to long-term pain. To be quite honest, the majority of people on this planet would happily sit under the chimp and, you know, probably not be here after something like that had happened. It's just an analogy, if you want to call it that. I mean, that is a crazy experience yeah. uh, at age 10. And then to not mm. have any memories before that because it's so traumatic. Gosh. Yeah. So between that, that's it. so what changed for you after that? I mean, your, your dad leaves when you're fairly young, um, but you're attracted yeah. to the military. You're reading, I think you're reading a lot of the same things that I was, that I was reading. Yeah. And I grabbed a couple of yeah. them off my shelf. No one, I, I'd be surprised if anybody remembers these guys. Combat oh, I can't believe it. No way. Yeah. That's how it all st- that's how it started. I've got that to blame. Nice. Yeah, <laughs> combat and survival, what it takes to fight and win. Like I remember these books. There were a few of them out there at the time. Yeah. Uh this one too. This was the uh the commandos right here. Uh, but there was a few yeah. of these books that came out in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, a few more trickled in, you know, throughout that that decade. Uh here's an yeah. SAS one right here. I like this one here, Ghost right here, Illustrated History of the SAS. Yeah. So I was reading, I think, some of those same ones and some of those same magazines, The Soldier of Fortune mm. and, and, uh, and Gung Ho and all these spinoffs that they had during the 80s. But, uh, but what happened to you between that age 10, between that chimp attack and then when you joined the military uh, personally? Yeah, well, what, what was the that interesting like? thing? I, yeah, so sorry. The interesting thing about that, Jack, is the fact that that was 1980 when I got attacked by the chimp. Now, people ask me a question and I can't, it's a rhetorical. And that is, do you think you'd have made it into the special forces past SAS selection if you'd not have been attacked by the chimp? And it's a really good question because that sent me on a bit of a crazy journey after that. Now, it's quite interesting to note that the same year that I got attacked by the chimp is the same year that the SAS stormed the Iranian embassy in London. And I saw that on TV. And, you know, Margaret Thatcher, who was the prime minister at the time, actually said that because usually they would cover that up so the public couldn't see it. But she wanted the world to see the capability of our soldiers, almost like a deterrent. And I saw that. And I think that sort of, there was a seed that was planted Mm -hmm. in that year. For me, after that time, I went on a, you know, I was very different to my brother and sister. I was a crazy little teenager. I got into loads of trouble. I was like pushing the envelope big time, getting in trouble with the police. I, I just wanted to be in danger all the time. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a thing I've, I've managed to cure that now, mm-hmm. which, is, which is good. But for me, I wanted to be at the sharp end all the time. And I was pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. And I ended up getting in trouble with the police. Um, and, uh, I went to remand home actually, and I, I avoided a custodial sentence, which was a big wake up call for me. And at that point, my mom, whose life was pretty much broken at that time, my dad had left. Um, and, um, you know, although her life was falling apart, she, she realized I needed her at that moment. So she made sure that all my energy, um, and I had loads of it, um, as you do, 
was then focused into my sport and everything, athletics, you know. And then it was at that point when I was 13, 14, that I said, right, that's it. I'm joining the military. Start to do some research. Read those books exactly like you. They've just shown me combat and survival was, I used to fantasize over being a soldier. And, um, you know, it was at that point, 14 years old, I can remember at school, I was, I was good at school. And then all of a sudden, as soon as I got that interest in the military, I went, what is the point of all this? Mm-hmm. I couldn't understand it. I was like, I'm joining the military. I'm going to join the Royal Marine Commandos. That is me set for life. And uh, that, which is a pretty bold statement to say at 14. Yeah. Um, and, and that was it. You know, that was my heart was set on that. My dream and everything was set on joining the Royal Marines. Um, and it's interesting because I went to the careers office. This, uh, this is was, my mum used to take me to the careers office quite often. I actually couldn't join at 16, which I think is a good thing. I think 16 <laughs> is so young for a yeah. soldier, man. Um, and um, because of my criminal convictions, they said, look, it's better if you wait a couple of years, then you don't have to have it on your record. So uh, I waited until I was 18, finally got in. But I can remember going to the careers office and the woman in there was, uh, you know, interviewing me. She says, if you do pass Royal Marine Commando training, which is, I'm going to say the hardest in the UK, uh, you know, some people say different, but, you know, we're we'll all go with it. Biased. Let's go with it. Yeah, the hardest in the UK, 32 weeks of absolute pain. She said, if you do pass that, what do you want to do? What skill do you want to, you know, what what specialization do you want to do? I opened the magazine and there it was. It was a a swimmer delivery vehicle, mini sub, Mm -hmm. um, with a combat swimmer swimming from that delivery vehicle. And I said, I want to do that. And she looked at me, rolled her eyes and laughed. And it was like, everybody wants to do that. SAS operator, Des Powell. Des spent 28 years in the British military. His book, Bravo 30, recounts his experience in the opening hours of the 1991 Gulf War. Here's a portion of our conversation. Yeah, no, I mean, SAS selection obviously has been the foundation for many other special operations forces around the world that have studied that. People have gone there, like Charlie Beckwith, who later founded Delta, of course. and and so you have that uh, that phase in the beginning where you're you're uh, patrolling through the mountains. You have your rucksack on. You're orienteering. You're finding your way, patrolling. And then you go to the jungle. And you a lot of people. It's their first time in this environment, an environment that can kill you just as easily as uh, as easily as gunfire um, and the enemy. But uh, and then you go to that E and E phase, which is always the one that is fascinating to me because you put in all this all this time, and then you get thrown into something that. Uh, seems to have a little bit more uh, secrecy surrounding it anyway. And uh, that, that E&E seer or whatever that it's, uh, however it's termed, and you get to do that. So how, how was that experience for you? Was that, uh, was that one that you learned a lot from or that you just had to like get muscle through and get to the end? Yeah, now th- th- this one, yes. Th- this was the period that I'd never ever done anything like this before. You know, the, the first phase tends to be the whole phase, the fitness phase, navigation, as you said, the middle phase tends to be the jungle, but the last phase I'd done nothing like this before. So in a way, this one scared me the most. This one, I thought, you know, it's more easier to fail because you haven't experienced it before. And what they do, they, they, they learn you how to kind of live off the land. Um, they teach you how to navigate uh, by yourself or in very, very small groups. And, and then they send a hunter force after you as well. So they chase you for quite a few weeks over the hills. And it's normally up in Wales where we do all our training in, in, uh, in the Brecon Beacons. 
and this is where all the British Army do their training. And but then at the end of that phase, you you are caught and you put in what is called the pen, and you are interrogated then for two or three days. And uh, um, you're interrogated. It's um, you have it's the the good guy, the bad guy. You have the lady. You have uh, people with uh, funny accents. Um, but it's 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 all done very very real. And again, it's you 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 are you, you are fully aware that you're being tested, and you are fully aware that you can fail at any time. Um, but yes, this I found it particularly hard. Um, this this is the phase that um, a lot of people trip up on because you're coming to the end of your six months training. Um, uh, like myself, a lot of people haven't experienced this. And it's very, very easy, Jack, to slip up. It's very easy to do something wrong, very easy to say something wrong, especially when you've been on the run for many weeks. And especially when you're being interrogated as well, it's it's, it's very very real. So um, if anything, you, you you can make a mistake. Um, luckily for myself, I, I managed to get through again. And uh, um, but answering your question, uh, yes, I did learn a lot. It was very very hard. The whole of it was very very hard. But especially that phase was was very very difficult. Yes. Yeah, that's an interesting one because. We- we do our SEER school, which was really based on, at least the time when I when I did it back in 97 or 98, um, really based on the Vietnam experience and uh, that Vietnam prison camp and the, the sights and the smells and the accents and all that stuff was kind of based around around that. And then later, I think, it was, yeah, still pre-September 11th, I did an advanced SEER that was more based upon, hey, you get, you know, kidnapped in Beirut type of a thing. Uh, and then they throw you in yes. front of the CNN cameras and, you know, the, all, yes. all that, that sort of thing. So it was a little, little different, but once again, uh, sights, smells, sounds, uh, like you're in Beirut or somewhere like that. Uh, anyway, so that was interesting. But what I took away from both of those is do not get captured. Like I'm going to get on these. That's why I've always been a runner. And, uh, so yes. I always figure my E and E kit, uh, I'm not going to be hanging out fishing, uh, you know, with a little tiny fishing thing. I'm going to be running like, just like Chris Ryan, the one that got away. I'm running to that Syrian border. Yes. That is my E yes. kit right there. I'm going to be in shape enough to do that. Yes. I'm going to be aware enough of what's going on around me, uh, know how to navigate yeah. and know how to move out, uh, and not get captured. Cause, oh my gosh, that was, anyway, that was my, my takeaway from that, uh, that, a similar type of experience anyway. Yeah. 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 And then uh, from the parachute regiment, did you already have your halo and hey ho type training, or was that more static line? And then you did do more advanced uh, free fall type parachuting uh, once you got to the regiment. Is that how that works? Uh, yes, uh, in the parachute regiment, I just did static line jumping, and then when I uh, joined the SES, as you know, you can uh, the troops we have mobility troop, uh, mountain troop. Uh, boat troop and air troop. I went to air troop, and that is when you specialize then in your uh, halo and hey ho, high altitude, low opening, high altitude, high opening. Um, for people that's listening, that's dealing at 25,000 feet, um, uh, jumping with oxygen, normally at night with equipment. Uh, free falling is normally about two minutes free fall. Uh, the speed you reach in free fall. Uh, terminal velocity is 120 miles an hour. Changing the shape of your body, you can come up to speeds of 180 miles an hour. Um, it's very, very dangerous. Like all this stuff is we do, Jack, isn't it? You know, 
And um, so if you collide with anyone in the sky or it, you hit any equipment because you jump out with equipment, which is on a drove chute, um, you, you can have some real problems. Um, I've had colleagues that have friends that have actually died doing this sort of training. So, um, yes, so um, it's, but when it goes well, it's, it's very, very satisfying. Very scary. Yes, I, I can admit every time doing that, uh, jumping with oxygen at night, free falling, um, sometimes in really cold countries. In fact, I talk about a particular story in the book, don't yep. I, when I'm in a, a very cold country, sub-zero temperatures of 20, 30 below. And um, I have a problem and uh, I start to float into a country that I shouldn't be floating into. But uh, um, I won't give too much away of that story. Will oh, I was going to ask you know. specifically about it because it plays into <laughs> actually some things that are happening in the news right now. I mean, we're focused on Ukraine, but there's some other things that, that Russia is doing at the same time. If you look at new bases going in up, uh, up near the, in and around the Arctic Circle for those shipping lanes. Um, and you had, a, you had a close call up there. Um, but that wasn't your only close call doing free fall. I think you had like three or four malfunctions and that's where you get your nickname. Is that how that, is that how that works? Yes. It's, <laughs> uh, it's funny, Jack. I, I don't seem to have much uh, um, luck parachuting. <laughs> yes. They, um, I, they used to call me kamikaze Des because I've had three malfunctions. Now people always said to me, they go, um, so what's that like Des? And, uh, uh, put it this way. Um, you look up and um, the shoot is not what you want to see. Um, it, 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 we call it a bag of washing. In in UK, uh, if we look up and we don't like what we see, it's uh, it's normally something that, oh, right, I need to get rid of that. And there's a, there's a process that we call, Jack, called cutting it away. And, and cutting it away is a, is a procedure that you pull a handle on your uh, harness, which releases that shoot, and then you pull another handle which brings you onto your reserve. And so I've had to do that three times <laughs> and um, it works every single time because I'm here to talk about it. <laughs> and some people say, well, what happens if you go onto your reserve, Des, and that doesn't work? And I say, well, it's just not your day, you know. But um, do you know something, Jack, on that, even though um, parachuting is a very, very dangerous a hobby, if you like, you know, you have um, guys that do um, uh, sport parachuting, if you like, but you very, very rarely hear of any fatalities, even though it's dangerous, it's a very, very well governed sport. The things that you tend to have is, you know, twisted ankles, you know, broken legs, things like that. If you come in wrong or you're coming too fast, but um, unfortunately on military parachuting, when you're carrying all the equipment and you're carrying weapons, and it's at night and you're on oxygen and it's freezing up your goggles and it's freezing up your altimeters and it's freezing up your oxygen and you can't breathe properly and you're bumping into people in the sky and what have you. Well, then that is when you earn your money, Jack, isn't it? You know? And um, so, yes, um, I've had three malfunctions. Luckily, I'm still here to talk about it. And uh, we've got uh, a few stories in the book which talks about that as well. Yep. Now that's, uh, that's uh, the training in and of itself is just so inherently dangerous. SAS operator Andy McNabb. His book, Bravo 20, recounts his experience in the 1991 Gulf War to include his capture. By the time he left the British military in 1993, he was their most decorated serving soldier. From the back of his book, this is their story. 
filled with no-holds-barred details about McNabb's capture and excruciating torture. It tells of men tested beyond the limits of human endurance and a war you didn't see on CNN. Here's Andy McNabb. And the other bit is the uh, conduct under capture module yeah. where you sit uh, for about, uh, it's, it's about a week and everybody, uh, a selection of people who've, who've been held against their will, whether they're prisoners of war, political prisoners, uh, kidnapped victims, you know, for money, anybody who's been held, you know, journalists would come in who've been held, you know, where they've been reporting. And what they would talk about is their experiences. And you would, you know, then you'd have a Q&A afterwards. And the, and, the, and the idea was that if you listen to all these different people's experiences, if there's something, just a sentence that helps you if you're caught, because obviously, you know, special forces, they're prone to capture troops, same as air crew, you know. So they, if, if there's something, just one thing that's going to help you when you're captured, it's worth sitting there for, a, you know, for a week listening to all these different people's experiences. Um, and, and and obviously for me during the Brother Two Zero experience, it, mm -hmm. it, you know it worked very well. Worked very well indeed. Inch, I was going to get ask you if you thought back to that yeah. uh, that time during Bravo Two Zero, but I'll get to that in a in a second. But uh, do you remember? Uh, I think they had somebody a like a woman from the Special Operations Executive that jumped into to France during World War Two that came and talked to you guys and uh, and yeah. made an impression on you that uh, some and was captured. Absolutely. I don't know right away maybe, but um, this, yeah. She was a young, torture. yeah. She was what well, she was. A, she was a young French woman living in London when war broke out, and she was a dressmaker. And SOE got hold of her, and they um, said, "Right, you're going to go back to France, and basically, um, we just want you to blow up stuff." And she's gone, "Yeah, okay." She's 19, wow. so she gets her training. She parachutes. They actually they, they jumped her into Holland, and the idea was then she was going to get moved back in 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 France, and um, she started operating and was caught, and had it was so something about two years of interrogation. She's, you know, she never broke out of her cover story, um, you know, constantly, um, you know, obviously denying what she what she what she was doing, um, and then eventually landed up in uh, a concentration camp and you know and then was was liberated and the thing that that kept her going was the fact that her family was still in france so if she gave up her real identity would her then family be you know be um uh, rounded up as well so yes. and, and the amazing thing what she said she said look you can't do anything physically about what they want to do for it. Like you can't, there's not a thing you, you can do because they control you. So you just got to accept that and get on with keeping that sort of an integrity of her mind, of your mind. And that's, that's all you can do. And that certainly sort of stuck with me from, the, uh, from this woman who now was, you know, she was in her late 80s by then. Um, uh, you know, and this was from a, you know, by then, what, 20 year old uh, young French dressmaker. Um, and, and then um, I heard exactly the same thing from an American Phantom uh, pilot. It was a, it was a, um, uh, a Navy pilot, and uh, it, you know he, did, he, you know he had no hair, no teeth, you know no muscle mass, but he was still he was still alive. This guy, and 
literally it flown 77 missions off of the aircraft carrier he was based on. Does 80 missions, and that's the end of his tour. 77th mission, he got shot down. Spent five years in solitary confinement um, in, in Vietnam. Um, every major bone in his body had been broken. He had to self-heal. He had no muscle mass on his buttocks because it was just continuously sort of beaten out of him by a, um, a frayed bamboo. Um, and he said exactly the same. He said, look, there's nothing I could do. He says, look, I was a Marine. I was, you know, when they first sort of, you know, started to, to, to sort of get hold of me and, and, and in effect beat me up, um, I would fight back and said, I certainly, uh, you know, I really, really quickly learned that if there's two of them and you do that, well, they'll bring four guys in next time. So just accept it. And this guy accepted what happened to him physically just try to minimize the, the, the damage, but he kept the integrity of his, of, of, his, of his brain. And for him, his motivation was wanting to get back to see his child. Um, and he built a house mentally. He built this house and he had so much time, he redecorated it and he rewired it and he'd done all the, you know, and he said, I didn't have a clue about house building, but it didn't matter. I just, <laughs> you know, done this, 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 this process. His motivation was getting back to, to, to you know, to see his family. Um, and it works, you know, it, it, well, then he was, he was living in Hawaii and, you know, there was like loads of, um, uh, crystals hanging from his ceiling, you know, he did, he found Buddha and, you know, all that sort of uh, stuff. So what, you know, he was alive. So what? Wow. And did you think back on that training years later, uh, when you were captured in Iraq, did you think yeah. back to those people talking and when, what they went through and, and how did that, uh, how did that training and what the, those stories impact you then? Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. And it was that, that point. You know, coming from the the the, the SOE woman and from the uh, from the Phantom pilot, is that you j just accept it. It's you know within life, um, you know everybody else is to blame. If something misfortune happens to you, there's the, you know we live in a culture where somebody else is is to blame, and it's you know it's it's not your fault, and it's a system or an individual's fault. But the fact is, it doesn't change anything. If you're captured, you're in Baghdad, you're in an interrogation center. Well. It, you can blame whoever you want. Nothing's going to, nothing's going to change that. So that, that's why, you know, I, I, you know, I think that certainly the resistance to interrogation training um, was really, really helpful because they just fought those two uh, people. You just got to accept it and, and really just keep that integrity of the brain. Obviously, the, the, you know, we, we, when people are captured, there's still a job to do. You've got to retain that information um, to give, obviously, the headquarter element time to, you know, readjust, say, well, you know, we haven't heard anything from Bravo 2-0. Uh, what does that mean? Well, the worst case scenario is everybody's captured and they're saying everything that they know. So how do we then minimize the, the risk to the other guys on, on the ground? So your job is to give that window of opportunity. And that really comes from, you know, the operational security at the beginning of it, of, of, of any operation where you're only told what you need to know. So if this situation does happen, even if you do blur out everything you know, you can minimize it. So the headquarter element can look at it and go, this is what they know. Because as we plan and prepare, we go into isolation. So nobody knows what we're doing. We don't know what anybody else is doing. This is what they know. What can we change and, and adapt? So there's still a job to do, which is a big motivation, um, because obviously the, you know, the, the regiment's quite a small organisation, and and so I, you know, I had friends in in other in, in other squadrons that were out in the Western Desert, still out there looking for scuds, 
and you know, I'm the godfather of their kids, you know, all that sort of stuff. That's that, all that stuff happens. So there's a motivation, you know, not to not to um, uh, uh, you know to blow out what you know and to understand you've still got a job to do. Incredible. And so before before 1990, 1991, uh, you get to your squadron and you go right to a uh, to an air troop, air squadron. Is that how you how you yeah, do it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there's four squadrons, and then in each squadron there's four troops so there's an air assault troop there's a boat troop mounting troop mobility troop uh, basically entry skills you know how you can get pe- pe- people into the you know the theater of operations so um i come from a you know a regular sort of light infantry regiment so i wasn't parachute trained so i had to go away and do the basic static line jump uh, right. course and then got onto the you know the um, the, the the military freefall you know the halo and 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 uh uh uh, military insertion, you know, jumping at 20, well, anything now, uh, going up now, it's 24,000 up to 32,000 feet now. Um, and you jump out with the loads and all, all that sort of stuff. So, which I found quite exciting, actually. I thought that was a really exciting thing to, uh, uh, to do and, and still do it now as a sport. Oh, um, nice. Yeah, yeah, it's great. It's, you know, I really enjoy it. But, um, so that was very exciting, joining the, uh, the, the Sabre Squadron into a, you know, a, an air assault troop. Um, and then really, uh, you know, I got badged on a Tuesday where, you know, you become a member of the, of the squadron and, uh, the squadron were already out on operations in Southeast Asia. So I, I went out on the Thursday, um, back into the jungle for about another six weeks. Um, but without realizing it, it was, a, it was a really good opportunity because, because of the, the, the squadron was operating as a whole, which was quite unusual. So I got to know people you know before sort of coming back to hereford which is the base of the special air service in the in the west of the the, the country and um because uh, sometimes you might join a squadron and you might not see people for years because they're away on a job they come back you're out on one and right. so you sort of you know you miss people all the time so for me it was really good um and then it finished that that uh, uh that uh job you know which in southeast asia and literally then came back and then started to get ready for what was called a troop tour of uh, Northern Ireland. So we were the, uh, the, the air assault troop was going to be the special air service contingent of the, the, the conflict there, um, which, which again, I found it really exciting. So all of a sudden I've become one of those guys I saw when I was 18, you know, we had the, yeah. the long hair and, you know, the fast nice. cars and all, all that, you know, all that stuff going on. Um, uh, and it, yeah, that, that it was a um, yeah. We took casualties. We had, we had people killed. You know, there were you know obviously the terrorist organisations were taking casualties. Um, uh, but the whole sort of gamut of that of, of of that tour certainly for me was so interesting because you could see now how where all that human information was coming mm-hmm. from and and how all that that if you like the the darker side of the of, of the war was was being fought, um, which was really interesting. SAS operator Ben Garwood, who, after leaving the British military, started a series of sci-fi-influenced fiction called Groundhammer. Here we are discussing the influence of technology on the modern battlefield. The SAS was formed... uh, Yes, okay, we we were formed out of North Africa, um, but we really cut our teeth in, um, in the jungles of of uh, Malaysia, you know, that's where we really cut our teeth. Mm. We came into our own then. Mm. Um, my squadron logo is is of a, a tick, 
mm. you know, um, uh, and that was me- um, that was actually meant to be from um, the guys picking up ticks and, and from in the jungle, and then there's. B-Squadron's got a bear paw uh, from a bear that they found on a camp attack back in the sort of 1950s. And stuff. Wow. The truth of the matter is the the A-Squadron's tick isn't a tick at all. It's actually an, uh, a crab. It's an STD crab that the bloke's got after whoring it. But obviously <laughs> they thought it was so funny that when they came back and their new girlfriends and wives were like, what is that tick? Oh, it's a, it's a tick that we got from the jungle. They didn't really want to go. It's actually an STD crab, which thought it was so funny because everyone got crabs from pouring it. Oh my we God. Now use it as a unit logo. But, wow. Um, I love it. But these guys, they're old school. You know, these yeah. guys are absolutely, the selection was, was operational tour back in those days. Wow. Um, and it's still, it is, the thing that divides you the jungle as you you probably know is 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 where it absolutely divides the man is the jungle because you've got nothing you know it's hot it's humid um everything's dirty everything's you've got to administrate yourselves you've got to hydrate you've got to feed you've got to stay clean you know it's it's a difficult environment to work and then on top of that you're probably against an enemy who was born there mm-hmm lives there they know it better than you do so it's a it's a difficult environment to work in um yeah so after after the the jungle we um we then go on and do uh, a number of things i, I won't go too much into yeah, that yeah that's people, a good that's an interesting that's part your next part there is an interesting one you know i'm sure people can find it online but it's uh you know there's some interesting things you guys do after that jungle phase yeah yeah exactly and i, I don't really want to be the one to spill it but um but what i would say though and, and i don't know if, if you'd agree with this uh, or it's something you identified because as you as you think you and I soldiered over the same period of time is um, about 20, you know, 25 years ago, we were very, very conscious of our, going back to the original conversation, we were conscious about our own digital footprint. Mm-hmm. We were conscious about how we were seen electronically. <clears throat> um, and our arrogance over the last few years has sort of led us to, um, to to rely heavily on on tech um and the analogy i use is called the dick pick it's a dick pick so it's where officers continuously want information from the front line and they want a high resolution and they want this dick pick and what is a dick pick a dick pick is a piece of information that's completely pointless that's only going to get you in the shit so why <laughs> fucking send it um so you know why do we constantly want this need for uh, for information on the front line and and you know you can see that in the latest release of what you've done is, you know, we're identifying our own enemies on their electric, electronic presence. So what's saying that the people who are sponsoring these proxy forces were against are not just doing exactly the same on us. But when it, the shit hits the fan and we then have to work in a contested environment, we no longer have the, the luxury of relying on technology. Or even if we have technology, that technology still needs to be deployed. So working those environments, you still have to go to absolute basics. And on those basics is working on your belt buckle. That's mm-hmm. you relying on your field craft, the absence of the normal presence of the abnormal when it comes to patrolling. It comes to all of those things that you know are absolutely wrong about what's going on in that environment that you are in. And we learn those skills by playing hide and seek as kids. We learn those skills by trapping, by catching and shooting rabbits. We learn those skills on playing on those in, in an urban environment by playing on the building sites and playing, you know, 
kick the can with your friends or whatever. And those skills, I mean, was it Roy's Rangers? You could probably bring it back to that shit as well. Rogers Rangers, yeah. Those, Rogers Rangers, sorry, I apologize. Those, those skills there are what is going to take you forward and ultimately keep you going. Um, so this modern age where we've got boys and girls who aren't playing in the woods as much, they're not out. Well, the knock-on effect is we're going to have to recruit them. They're our next recruiting pool. We also saw it, uh, Jack, in Afghanistan, where that generation, who were probably two or three generations after you and I, have a FOB mentality. You know, so they worked out of these FOBs. And because they're working out of FOBs, they, were, they, they created routine. Mm -hmm. uh, they were, had restricted in the areas of operation. They set patterns. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, when we shoot, when we fish, when we hunt, we do that based on patterns that our mm -hmm. quarry is setting. Mm -hmm. So we spend the whole time just laying ourselves up and our arrogance led us to that. And these boys and girls, these poor, you know, these poor young boys and girls mm -hmm. who are doing exactly as they're told. Now in 2009, when I was in that hospital and I was talking to these guys and I was saying, you know, what happened, you know, and I was lucky. I came from a unit that did a lot of Northern Ireland patrols. So mm -hmm. we, we, we were used to patrolling, you know, we would, we wouldn't, crossover at vulnerable points. We would never, you know, stick to tracks or paths. And every single one of these guys and girls, they've said, well, you know, I was, I went there every day. It was fine. Or oh, I patrolled around this route all the time. I was on this track. I was on this road. Oh, I was like, oh my fucking God. you know, and, and it's not their fault. It's not their fault because they didn't grow up that way. And it's not their fault because their commanders weren't educated that way. So what they, what we saw is this fault mentality of, reliance on technology, um, um, not being able to patrol. And then ultimately organizations like yours and mine would eventually have to recruit from that pool of people. And that's where selection had always failed in the past because selection doesn't teach you how to soldier. It assumes you are the best soldier from your unit going forward. Right. It hasn't got the time to teach you. It's not yeah. about that it assumes you've got those skills already in balance. So I'm not saying that this is an issue because I certainly are addressing it, but it's, it's certainly a, a cultural issue going forward, oh, yeah. you know? So I think that's something that, that, um, that, that uh, it is being addressed uh, and, and finally being recognized. Yeah. Um, but it's crazy. We're now looking at countermeasures that we took for granted 25 years ago. Oh, right. You know, maybe we should look at a different type of comm system. We did that 25 years ago. Yeah. No, it's amazing. The adaptation that takes place. And for you guys going to Northern Ireland, I can only imagine uh, the observation skills that would come come into play because, well, you owe it to yourself, your family, the guys to your right and left in that patrol. Um, and uh, that sixth sense um, coupled with observation skills. I mean, there's a reason that uh, that we're here today and that's because we had ancestors that also, they didn't get too near that ledge. Uh, they were good at hunting, they were good at fighting, but they also listened to that gut instinct. They listened to that sixth sense, which is a real thing. Yeah, um, but all those yeah. patrols in Northern Ireland, I mean, I've, I've, I've been in Northern Ireland and I've been to a couple bars up there, but uh, I, but, you know, in my mind growing up in the eighties and reading all those books about Northern Ireland and that being, you know, kind of a focal point of terrorism in, in, in the eighties, um, when things were written about magazine articles and newspaper articles and, and that sort of a thing would often reference what was going on up there. But, uh, it, I can just imagine being on these, these patrols. It's, wearing very, uniform. it's, it's very difficult to fight any form of, uh, you know, the, the terrorism or insurgency where mm -hmm. 
You don't own the ground. You can't dominate. This was the thing with the fobs. You, uh, fobs, yeah, we're in these fobs in the middle of some shithole so we can dominate the area. You're not dominating the area if you got, keep leaving the area to go back into your fob. Yeah. The same as Northern Ireland, we kept leaving the ground to go back in the ground. And yeah. at, the, at the time, I mean, they're civilians. The same as Afghanistan. We had this idea we were fighting the Taliban. Taliban was just, was just a way... Uh, to suit really uh, the narrative that many of our officers are trained, which is the red coats versus the blue coats. We were fighting a populace, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, and obviously it's a great narrative for our governments to justify that there is a solid enemy as opposed to a you know a generation, a populace that you're fighting, who are only just you know protecting their crop and their own interests. Yeah. Um, and and how do you fight that? You can't fight that if one moment they're picking up a you know, a, a hoe, a rake, uh, you know, whatever, going to work, and then they're pulling out a weapon system. You never know who your enemy are, you know, yeah. um, and it's very difficult to do that unless they, you are working in a uh, against an enemy that is uh, a conventional enemy. We're not. We're fighting guerrilla warfare. Special Boat Service Operator Dean Stott. After his time in the Special Boat Service, he turned into an adventurer and endurance athlete security consultant author, and now host of SAS Australia, Who Dares Wins. Here he is talking about his time in the SBS. But then, so, but you go back and then you come back, I think, maybe one more time, and that's the, uh, the uh, evacuating the Canadian contingent and using that's fish it, trucks. Yeah. And, 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 and then what was that about? Like, that was, that was pretty wild. Yeah, so I'd, I'd been in and out of Libya still a couple of times since, but then I was out in Brazil doing the World, covering the World Cup. And what happened now is the Tripoli War, which is a civil war between the militias and the government. Um, so that job with the prime minister was um, September 13. This was now July 14. And so I got a phone call from the Canadian embassy. They'd obviously heard about the Benghazi stuff and other things, and they said, look, your name keeps coming up, you know, situation is here everyone's gone the americans brits italians are already left and they they were still stuck behind they're stuck behind because they were shredding or that they're not going back in whereas the other embassies were coming back in so they 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 got um caught behind and so um and they said your name keeps coming up they had there was 18 military and four diplomats they had their own cp team uh things like that but they'd never left the walls of tripoli is it the, the coastal road is only 100 kilometers to the border. Mm. And I'd already got a couple of guys out for, for USAID in low-profile vehicles, in little taxis, just got them straight across again, not drawing any attention to them, but using my fixer, because his family were from Zwala, which is on the border. So again, having okay. those right contacts, and we had safe houses along the way. So I flew back in from uh, Brazil into Tripoli and you know, liaised with their CP team, but they had no insight of what was going on outside of, of their accommodation in Palm City. So a week before the British embassy got shot at every checkpoint um, in the B6 vehicles with the red number plates. And so me and, my, me and Abubaka went out and we spoke and we did all the intelligence stuff. We spoke to the tribe, didn't speak to the guys with the guns, spoke to the tribal elders, told them what our, our plan was, our objective, and when we were doing it. And it was actually all about respect and communication. And, and, you know, they appreciated it. And actually, where the Brits got shot at, one of the main towns, we then got escorted when we came out because they knew we were coming. And, and it was, you know, it was just a different approach rather than just that hasty, that hasty move. Uh, right. is high time, you know, assess the situation. 
So, yeah, so they were in their vehicles and then myself and Abu Bakr in a soft vehicle uh, ahead of the convoy, you know, speaking to the, the checkpoints, you know, liaising, you know, harming some, some, some hands with cash, as you do, yeah. uh, and then just safely got them through. Yeah, so evacuated the Canadian embassy, 18 men. We had UAV coverage as well from the, from the, from the border. But obviously, they could only... But they're diplomatic vehicles. No one's allowed to go in, enter their vehicles. They had much more kit than that. So their, their issue was the kit. So again, rather than having vehicles attached to them, because people will be wondering what those vehicles are, every day from Tripoli, there's fish, 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 fish wagons, which take fish from Tripoli into Tunis. So they do that route every day. They know the borders. They know the things. So that's what I did. I, I employed two fish wagons. Uh, who do that route all the time, and we put all this, and it was a lot of it was sensitive kit as well. Put it in there. Well, the sense a lot of this more sensitive kit was with them, but there was stuff in there which was just too bulky for their vehicles, and you could see yeah. they were a bit nervous about it. But they they got straight through. They were actually in there before we were. Um, so it's just another approach, um, a low profile, you know, in fish wagons that do it daily. So that's incredible. So you're like the guy to call to evacuate from these kind of, uh, you know. These, these kind of situations. I mean, you got quite the, quite the background in the military yeah. at the, at the tip of the spear in the military. And then here doing these, uh, the, the, in the, in the private sector, I mean, yeah. it's, it's incredible, especially all around the world, but in particular, the, the expertise and understanding of, uh, of Libya and what's going yeah. on on there is, is astounding. Thank you to Navy federal presenting sponsor of the danger close podcast. I've been a member since 1996, since my first couple months in the military. Thank you guys for being on the journey with me. Navy Federal Credit Union is helping their members save when they purchase new homes. They have loan options and resources to make sure you get a great deal. Now Navy Federal will contribute $1,000 as a lender credit towards closing costs on your new home. Members also save on their monthly payments since there is no requirement for private mortgage insurance. Plus, Navy Federal offers low rates and fees so you can save even more. Navy Federal mortgage experts can help you choose the best option for you, making the home loan process a smooth experience. Learn more at NavyFederal.org. Our members are the mission. Insured by NCUA, equal housing lender. Qualifying members with purchase mortgage applications after 916-22 may receive up to $1,000 towards actual closing costs applied at closing with no cash back and subject to loan program maximum contribution limits. Terms subject to change. Ask your loan officer for details. Navy Federal. I want to thank my friends at Black Rifle Coffee for sponsoring the Danger Close podcast. I've been a huge fan for the longest time. Drink Black Rifle Coffee every day. And if you keep your eyes peeled, you will notice that perhaps Chris Pratt is wearing a Black Rifle Coffee t-shirt, not unsimilar to this one, in the Amazon series adaptation of The Terminal List. Now you can go to blackriflecoffee.com slash dangerclose and use code dangerclose 20 at checkout for 20% off your purchase and your first coffee club order. Black Rifle Coffee, America's Coffee, keep crushing. Thank you so much to Six Hour for jumping right on board out of the gate to make this podcast possible. Obviously, I am a huge SIG fan, having carried the P226 on every deployment downrange in the SEAL teams, uh, but 
Sig was a supporter. They were friends well before uh, I was a New York Times bestselling author, uh, well before I even had an Instagram account or any social media presence whatsoever. So thank you guys all so much. Uh, Ron, Tom, Jason, everybody at SIG who gets up every day and continues to crush it and lead the way. SIG is always adapting. They're always at the forefront, whether it is firearms for citizens, whether it's firearms for our military, ammo, suppressors, optics, training, fire control units. They are doing it all, and they are always pushing, pushing that envelope and trying to do it better each and every day through innovation and adaptation they crush so thank you so much for that friendship and support uh it will never be forgotten thank you for tuning into the danger close podcast ironclad original presented by navy federal credit union links to the full episodes and the books are in show notes you can follow me at jack car usa on the social channels officialjackcar.com that is the website you can go there to sign up for the newsletter and click on shop for the merch. Until the next time, take care out there, stay safe, be strong, keep fighting.